You're listening to Distilling Theology. I'm Blake. And I'm Justin. This is a new podcast combining discussions of theology and distilled spirits. And dad jokes. Amen. What's wrong with you people? You're not David. I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. Fatality. You know... Starting a podcast about theology and distilled spirits is whiskey business. <laughs> I said that with a straight face. This is distilling theology. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. <laughs> Welcome back to Distilling Theology. Not that other reformed podcast with two guys talking about theology. Today is a very special episode. I'm very excited. Indeed. We have a very special guest on. Uh, he is a pastor. He is old, older <laughs> than me, uh, because he is my father. And, uh, he is here today to talk about a very, uh, important and significant subject. Uh, but before we get into the heavy and deep stuff, uh, we're going to sip, we're going to sip some stuff tonight. Do we want to introduce his name as well? No, no, we don't. <laughs> no one needs to know who he is. <laughs> Anonymity is key. Yeah. My dad, uh, why don't you introduce yourself, sir? I'm the older Van Riper at the table, Gary Van Riper, pastor of a uh, church in Camden, New York. Glad to be here. Thanks for coming on. How long have you been a pastor, Dan? I'm the reluctant pastor. Mm. I've been a pastor 16 years, senior pastor 16 years. People throughout my Christian life were telling me, even when I first became a Christian, that I should be a pastor. And um, I just resisted it through the years. Part of the reason that I resisted it was because um, I didn't want people to think I was serving God and that I loved God because I was getting paid to do it. Mm. That may seem kind of silly, but it wasn't silly to me then. In fact, I had an uncle say once, well, of course you love people. You're paid to love them. And I just wanted, you know, I I didn't want that Mm. tag on me. So, but finally I stopped resisting. So 16 years ago, accepted a call. Yeah, resistance was futile. (laughs) Star Trek. Excellent. Well, what are we sipping tonight, Blake? This is J.R. Ewing, Mm -hmm. Private Reserve Kentucky Bourbon Whiskey. I literally picked this up at random off a shelf today when I was on my way out to visit, as this is an episode we're actually recording in person for the first time since we started the show. Indeed. And all God's people said amen. (laughs) Apparently, this whiskey was crafted as a tribute to a character by the same name from the TV show Dallas. Which you have seen, right, Dan? You've seen the show? Yeah. Saw quite a few episodes. Mm. Yep. So I have no context, but we'll see if the the flavor profile matches the character of this J.R. Ewing. Indeed. It's got kind of a copper color, warm copper. Yeah. And it is, so I will give a little bit more detail here. It is bottled by Southwest Distillery in Dallas, Texas for the South Fork Bottling Company, also out of Dallas, Texas. And according to the information I found online, it is technically a Kentucky bourbon. So my guess is that they are getting barrels from Kentucky and bottling them in Texas, which is a fairly, fairly common practice in blends and things of that nature. Mm. Now, this one's interesting. I do. I was actually able to find the mash bill. It's 81 percent corn. 13% rye and only 6% malted barley. So I presume this is going to be pretty sweet. And it says it's aged a minimum of four years. Dad, what do you have in your glass tonight? Uh, once again, I have Camden, New York tap water on the rocks. <laughs> and enjoying that right now, as a matter of fact. Mm. Mm. 
Yeah, this has that very like that typical bourbon apple-y thing that you and I usually yeah. pick up on, but yeah, it it's also very light. There's almost something cinnamony about it, like apples and cinnamon. Well, there's um Oh no, it's not cinnamon. Vanilla, it's almost yeah. Caramel maybe. This is kind of interesting. There's almost I don't want to say mint, but there's almost something light and airy like that on the it's top of it. Citrusy almost. Like uh maybe maybe at like most, maybe like an orange. Yeah, it's very crisp is what I'm getting at when I said mint. I retract that statement. <laughs> All right, well, let's see what it tastes like. The first cheers, like real cheers in like dozens of episodes. Probably the worst Not sounding really one too because it was between both <laughs> <Yeah>. our mics. <laughs> it was pretty pleasant actually. I don't dislike it. No, it's not bad. Definitely some orange and orange peel. Yeah. It kind of reminds me, like, there's no chocolate, but it kind of reminds me of, you ever have those chocolates with orange? Mm-hmm. It kind of reminds me of those. Right, like that level of, of citrus. Orange, yeah, yeah, citrus, yeah. But instead of cocoa, it's like baking spice. Sure. There's some oak. Yeah. Which you're going to get a little bit burgers. more of a gulp than a sip there, so I'm going to try and take a smaller, <laughs> smaller sip so I can actually taste a little more. Yeah. It oddly reminds me of Cracker Jacks. Like well, the caramel, like the Cracker Jack corn popcorn? i can't unsee that now thanks for that <laughs> am i wrong though <laughs> i mean it's now that you mention it it's like when people have one worldview and then you share with them a whole different world that they didn't understand before and all of a sudden their eyes are open and they can't unsee what has been seen <laughs> the scales have been orange peeled off their eyes uh, uh, <laughs> oh no this this episode's already off the rails. We haven't been recording but seven minutes. All right. Well, oh. it is as we're recording this. It is a very special week for all of us, and hopefully a lot of you listening. This is the Sanctity of Life Week, and Justin, maybe you could give us a little more lead in, and then we'll bounce right into the meat of this. Well, yeah. So this is we're recording this at the end of Sanctity of Human Life Week. Last Sunday was Sanctity of Human Life Day, a day in which we celebrate the sanctity of human life. It's obviously a pro-life stance. As you would expect, we are Christians. We believe that people are made in the image of God and have inherent value and worth. Mm -hmm. And to take life at any stage of development, including inside the womb, is murder. And so we celebrate the sanctity of human life. And uh, this is a fight that we've been in for some time, but my dad has been in for a long time, which is why we wanted to bring him on. He has a lot of special expertise. He's been doing this for a very long time. And uh, Dad, why don't you tell us kind of your beginnings in the battle with uh, abortion, um, where you got started, and how you've come to where you are today? Sure. Um, Well, I became a Christian in the early 1970s, and um, I was in my 20s, early 20s, and I was totally oblivious until the late 70s. I didn't even know what abortion was. Hmm. I mean, I was that kind of naive or, you know, just clueless. And um, I had the opportunity to go to Philadelphia um, and hear uh, my hero, Francis Schaeffer. I'd read several Francis Schaeffer's books, and he was, I knew he was going to do this special. There was a premiere of a film series and all of this. It was called Whatever Happened to the Human Race, and I didn't know what it was about, really, but I wanted to go down and hear Schaeffer. So I was able to go down there, and um, not only did Francis Schaeffer speak, but Dr. C. Everett Koop. Um, who was um, a surgeon there at Children's Hospital in Philadelphia. Uh, he later became um, the Surgeon General under Ronald Reagan and so on. But again, I didn't know who he was. Um, so when I got down there and they started talking about not just abortion, because, you know, pro-life um, isn't just about abortion and the unborn. Um, it's about infanticide. Mm-hmm. It's about active euthanasia. You know, it's about the disabled. Um, 
the infirm elderly. So the idea that, you know, pro-life day um, is uh, all about abortion, it's not. It's, mm. It includes that for sure, but it includes all of human life. Mm. And so when I came to understand that when Roe v. Wade, which is the, um, the, the uh, Supreme Court, you know, when that, when that got passed, um, that suddenly we decided in this country, the Supreme Court said there's such a thing as, as, as human life not worthy to be lived. And I was like shocked. And um, Francis Schaeffer throughout that weekend, all five films showed, they're on YouTube now as a matter of fact, and they're just as relevant. The production value isn't what they could be today, of course, because it was the late 70s and early 80s. But the content of those films is just as as relevant and fresh today as when it was first, because it speaks the truth mm. about life and human life. So um, Francis Schaeffer got smaller and smaller, and this truth got just bigger and bigger. And I came back, there's, I, I, I've always referred to, there's been two spiritual watershed events in my life. The first is when I became a Christian. The second was this, this life issue, and going to that, to that uh, seminar. So I came back immediately and I told my wife, Carol, I said, we got to do something about this. And so the first thing that we did was um, we took in a, a young girl um, who was pregnant and in a crisis pregnancy through birthright because the evangelical church had really not gotten on board yet at all. Mm. The Catholic church has been there with the issue for a long time, but the evangelical church until Schaefer and, and that film series and so on didn't, did not even get much attention, much less traction until after that. So it was through birthright that um, a young girl came to be with us. And this young girl, her, her boyfriend down south didn't know, even though she was pregnant. So she came back up here um, where her family was. And her sisters told her, you've got to get an abortion. And her father said, you've got to get an abortion. And she was going to get an abortion. And she picked up a, a leaflet from birthright that just showed the development of the unborn baby. And she read that and said, Planned Parenthood lied to me. And so she decided, despite all the circumstances that she was up against, difficult circumstances, she was going to keep this, or not keep the baby necessarily, but she was going to have the baby. So Birthright said, well, there's adoption as an option. And so she was going to give the baby up for adoption. So that's how she came to us, because we had put our name in. So she came and lived with us, and right up through her pregnancy, and then... Uh, my wife, your mom, Justin, um, became her birth coach, and she was there in the room when, when this young um, woman, girl, gave birth to her child. And then Birthright came to get the baby, and she was holding the baby and said, I, I can't. I, I, I've got to keep her. So she stayed with us another year and got her feet underneath her and then, um, and then, then went on. And, and what was interesting was, very slowly, first the sisters came around to see her and the baby. And then the dad, who, not her, not the dad of the baby, but her, you know, the birth mother's dad, was really ticked off if he did not get his weekly visit from his little grandchild. So we just saw it, there was a crisis pregnancy. And once they got through the crisis, they found it didn't ruin her life. In fact, we're still in touch with, it, with, with them. And that little baby now has like four children of her own, including twins. And, and she's become a Christian. And um, it's just, you know, that's just one story. 
And that's kind of our story. And that's how we got involved. It's when we moved to Camden, New York, um, a couple of years later, that I had a dream for, not like vision, like, you know, but just what more can we do? And so I thought maybe could we just get one room in Camden, New York for mothers in crisis pregnancy? Because now um, in the evangelical church, the Christian Action Council was the political arm kind of of the movement in the evangelical church. And but then they realized the compassion part, you know, we've got it. We've got to do something. So then CPCs, crisis pregnancy centers started to spring up. So we, I said, can we just get a room? So several of us here in Camden, several st- who still go to our church, were in that first meeting in our living room, and we prayed, and we, you know, we held a garage sale to, to earn some money, you know, for a newsletter. We got a hold of the Crisis Pregnancy Center's manual. Nothing about how to start one of these, but just went page by page through that manual. And um, long story short, um, I don't have the timeline right in front of me, but I'm going to say a year and a half to two years later, two years later, we had our first crisis pregnancy center. Um, And it was there in Rome, New York. We were actually in a building that had been vacated by Planned Parenthood. Hmm. So it happened to be the building we we got. So that got established. Then a few years later in Utica, New York, still not Camden, right? We went to Rome because demographically that made more sense. And then Utica, that made sense. There's colleges there. It's, you know, uh, kind of the, you know, the county seat and all of that. And then some satellites. And so over the years, there were like six or seven satellites over 30 years throughout central New York that came out of that. And, um, and then finally, when I became pastor 16 years ago, we, for a dollar, we ended up with the biggest church in town and in the park next door. To the to the church, and we had a big enough, and and suddenly we had our room in Camden. Actually, it took twenty eight years to have that prayer answered, but we now have that room in Camden, and we have a, a pregnancy center here in our village. So God is just, you know, I mean, our faith was so, if you want to call it small, Lord, could we have one room? And we knew that it was much bigger than any of us. That if this was going to succeed, the body of Christ had to say yes. And the body of Christ just kept saying yes, yes, yes. And and so now after all these years, we have an incredible um, facility, a headquarters in, in, in Utica. We, we were renting for years. We now own it. We have all these satellites now. Um, I don't know, half a million, three quarters of a million dollar a year budget. We do sonograms. Um, you know, we're medical now. And uh, the, that's been, that's been uh, a real changer. Because uh, the lion's share of women that see the ultrasound, see what, see, see who it is that's growing inside of them, mm. and they choose life. So that's kind of a, our sojourn over the 30 years so far. And now, right now, we're starting a pregnancy center in the Adirondacks, Adirondack Pregnancy Center. We hope it's going to be open this fall. We started about a year ago. And uh, the body of Christ is saying yes there, and there's been no pregnancy center like this in the entire in the entire six million acre Adirondack Park. Planned Parenthood is there with several offices, but um, there's been nothing along this line. So we're very grateful to God that it looks like this is going to happen as well. Pretty incredible, mm. uh, as you'd imagine. I've heard the story a few times, but what do you think, Blake? 
I'm just struck by the God's faithfulness in the midst of what seems like a hopeless and overwhelming situation. Yes. Because, I mean, and we've talked about this a little bit too, and we'll get into it, I'm sure, in other episodes, but there's that clip of John Piper talking about Christians about, oh, we're losing our country, we're losing our country. He says, well, it's not our, our country's in heaven. Like we're, yeah. we're going to, you know, and it doesn't mean that there isn't a place to, for Christians to, to thrive and to prosper, seek the welfare of the city that we're in, but we're, we're, we are the exiles in Babylon. And to see the faithfulness of God in that circumstance when his people just attune their ear to what he's clearly said. And like you said, it's not like a, a crazy middle of the night vision like God to, to Joseph saying, take Mary and the child and go down to Egypt or like, you know, some of these crazy prophetic visions of, of Ezekiel or Isaiah, these callings where they see into the throne of heaven and God says, who will, who will go for it? So it's just a simple I mean, from what I gathered there, just a simple, the ordinary means of grace, people sharing the word of God, people presenting this reality from the scripture. And you said, and you just responded like the spirit inside of you, God's stirring you to move and to act um, and, and paving the way through his providence, step by step and opening doors like that to me is just really, really incredible. So... I have some questions. There, in the in the Christian community, at least in the life community, there's been kind of a shift in the last, I don't know, five or ten years. Um, and there seems to be a bit of a split in the sense that there's people that are in the pro-life movement, and then there's people that are calling themselves abolitionists. Um, I would argue that uh, all of us here want to see abortion immediately abolished. Um, but... A crisis pregnancy center is a very generic term. Uh, there are lots of pregnancy centers, uh, not necessarily Christian pregnancy centers. Um, we have the Catholic Church, who also has several. Um, but I know one thing that stands out with our particular pregnancy centers, which I think doesn't uh, necessarily is not necessarily prevalent in all of them, is the fact that not only do we share uh, help for these women in need, we provide uh, financial help and, and literal uh, physical help and all these things. Um, but we don't leave it at that. We also present the gospel mm -hmm. and we let them know that all of it's ultimately meaningless without the gospel. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, there seems to be at least across the country, several uh, crisis pregnancy centers that don't necessarily offer the gospel. They just say, save right. your baby. And they try to save their babies and aren't offering the hope that actually is ultimately going to save them and their babies mm. uh, eternally. So what does that look like with with uh, with the with the CareNet this CareNet pregnancy centers? Um, what does that look like with the women that come in uh, in need? Um, like let's say a woman comes in, she says, "Hey, I'm pregnant. I'm unexpected. I was thinking about abortion." What would it look like to carry her through birth of the child and then after birth? Yeah. Well. Every case is a little bit different, right? Mm -hmm. what, what people bring in, you know, they get their pregnancy test if they're not sure that they're pregnant, you know, all that sort of thing. That they can have an ultrasound if they discover they are pregnant and all, all, of, all of those sorts of things, learning about the development of the baby. We have parenting classes because a lot of these young ladies, especially today, have not had real models necessarily. Mm -hmm. So sure. um, on how to parent. So mm -hmm. we offer those things. Of course, the baby clothes and there's, um, even like the, with the classes, you can earn baby bucks, you know, um, so you take so many classes and then you can get a, 
baby carriage or whatever, but yet nobody's ever denied anything they genuinely have need of either. But that's, you know, to give them a sense of ownership and, you know, like they're earning responsibility. Their key, yeah. yeah, like they're earning their way, uh, that sort of thing. Along the way, um, as these relationships are developed between the counselor and the young lady or the, the young lady, young man, or, you know, sometimes it's both of them that are there together to go through the process together. Um, it's just very natural for the gospel of Christ to be shared. Hmm. And um, so we have had, I don't have the stats in front of me, but, you know, we've had several thousands of babies saved. We've um, at least hundreds of people, I think, um, through our, just our, our eight satellites, seven or eight satellites, um, profess Christ. Hmm. Um, we have one young lady now, um, Kaylee Perrin, who, um, I mean, she came out of a situation with her, with now her husband, but then boyfriend, um, drugs. I mean, you know, he's a drug dealer. She became pregnant, so on and so forth. Everything they went through, came through CareNet. She came to Christ. Long story short with her, because I know we're limited time with the recording, you know, with your episodes, but um, she's now with Ambassador Speakers Bureau. And she's at fundraisers all over the country right now. She actually came to our church um, three years ago and um, before she became like this national speaker because I heard her story and she was kind of local. I said, would you come for Sanctity of Human Life Sunday? And uh, Kaylee's story, which is on Vimeo, it's a short documentary the church did, her church did. We showed that because it just came out like that the weekend before so they showed it at her church, Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. We we showed it the following Sunday. It was that fresh. And then I just interviewed her in front of the congregation. And wow, just a powerful testimony and story of God's mercy and grace. She, she came to Christ through that. And um, that film ended up actually winning second place in the International Christian Film Festival um, for documentaries mm-hmm. in Florida um, about a year, you know, just a short time ago. But... So there's stories like that that have come out as well. Ministries have come out of it. And to be a counselor, to be in leadership in CareNet, you also have to be a Bible-believing Christian as well, mm-hmm. correct? Yep, yep. The board of directors, counselors, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, we definitely, um, sharing the gospel um, is is critical, you know, to what we're doing. Before we got rolling in here, you and I were talking about it a little bit, and, and we you've kind of run run up on this a little bit about the compassion side mm-hmm. of it, and how we've all seen, and I mean it's I think it's the biggest caricature, unfortunately, but every caricature sort of has a root somewhere, of evangelicals wagging their finger at you know the the teenage girl or usually you know the pastor's kid or somebody who gets pregnant out of wedlock and then decides I did not get pregnant out of wedlock by the way. <laughs> That's good to know. And then decides to <laughs> carry the baby to term mm-hmm. instead of giving into all of that kind of pressure only to walk through the doors of the church and everybody turns their head slightly at them and gives them that look. And, you know, or maybe they get kicked out of the church. I've heard all kinds of crazy situations mm-hmm. from, from people I know, out, mostly people outside the church now who've left the church over things like this or mm-hmm. who witness this happen to other people or they've heard some horror story and they just throw that all on all Christians. Like you're all that way. And you were mentioning a couple of quotes that resonated really strongly with you. And I was wondering if you'd bring those back up from uh, Schaefer, because oh, I thought sure. those were just so poignant and, uh, you know, amazingly striking. It's kind of funny how a lot of the time in our show, we're always pulling back 
saints of yesteryear, their quotes and their words, because they're reflecting biblical truth mm-hmm. in their era. And it still resonates, you know, from the time it was written to today and through, you know, Schaefer or Spurgeon or Calvin, whoever it might be. It's like when they echo that truth in their time, it just resonates all the way to us. Uh, and I thought those quotes were really powerful. But Yeah, that's what truth does, right? I mean, you know, like Schaefer's work, uh, much of it is like, although he, he died quite a while ago, a lot of what he's written, if you open the book, it's like you, if you run your fingers across the the text, it's, it smears, the ink smears. It's so, it's like the Bible, you know, it's, it's as fresh today as when it was first yeah. written. That's what truth does. It's universal, mm-hmm. you know, uh, as well. So, yeah. And I'm glad that you brought that up, Blake, because as I mentioned to you before, I don't ever, I try to remember to never speak about this issue publicly without saying several things. And one is, And there's a good chance, I don't know what your total listenership is or where this may end up going, but there's an excellent chance that there's someone listening to this that's had an abortion. Mm. And um, and, uh, so while we say, yes, absolutely, abortion is uh, murder, it's the killing uh, of a life, Um, it's sin, but it's not the unpardonable sin. Mm. The blood of Christ that covers all sin covers the sin of abortion. In fact, that's one of the things CareNet offers is post-abortion Bible study. Hmm. And there are men and women that have gone through that study, um, carrying that guilt, you know, and um, coming to know um, Christ's forgiveness and mercy, you know, upon repenting and and um, that they can know that um, that God's forgiven them. So that's important. Schaefer also said that orthodoxy without compassion is ugly. Mm. So, you know, you can have dot your I's and cross your T's and, you know, quote your scripture and all of that. But um, to be orthodox without without compassion is, is ugly. You can't say it any better. Mm. Um, another thing, and I've got to paraphrase this, I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but he also said that we can we can call abortion wrong an inhuman response to a social problem. Uh, Call it sin, which it is, but it's just as much a sin to tell a woman that abortion is wrong and then do nothing to help her. Mm. So church, alert, right? Um, uh, We're in no place to condemn. Who were we and what were we like before we came to Christ? Mm. And I think many times Christians forget that. I, I hear often as a pastor especially, how could they do that? How could they be that way? Um, it could be a neighbor, you know, they, they, they blew their snow over in my driveway and when I said something, they swore at me. How could they do that? Well, they don't know. Do you remember how you were before you became a Christian and who you were? Mm-hmm. So we need to remember that. But I also, following up on what Blake was getting at, the other thing that I also try to make clear is if there is a young girl or a woman, but a girl in our congregation. I don't want to be that pastor that spoke in such a harsh or condemning way that I forced her while the right is still there to go get an abortion rather than face Mm. the congregation, you know, whatever embarrassment or whatever. It's not condoning the fact that the baby was born out of wedlock, which is sin, but it's pardonable sin 
Mm-hmm. And we try to create a place of compassion and help when we come alongside those girls. I don't want to stand before the Lord and say, because of things I said at the pulpit, you know, a young girl, we've had them as young in, in our county as 11 years old have become pregnant. Wow. So I don't want to, you know, that, that teenager, whether it's the pastor, could be the pat, but, you know, anybody in the congregation, you know, yeah. to, av- to avoid the embarrassment, mm. they're going to reach out, and we do. Mm. And I think that that, I mean, look at Christ in, in his actions in dealing with the sins. He never, ever, ever, ever said, that's all right, keep, keep doing what you're doing. Right. Go and sin no more. <laughs> right. There was Go and sin no more. A call to change, but also a pardon, you know, when there was that repentance, a pardon of what had been done, you know, who's, who's there to condemn you. I think Psalm 51 is a great mm. Psalm prayer, repentance. You know, you have to go there. You have to say what I did was wrong. You've got to take the responsibility, own it and say what I did was wrong. And it was sinful. It was rebellion against God, whatever the circumstances that brought it about, right. whatever. David, in Psalm 51, took responsibility. Mm. He didn't try to say, well, you don't understand, Lord. You know, I went to Bathsheba because, you know, this, that, or the other thing, you know, or they made me, or circumstances Mm. were such. Um, He just admitted, and that's why he was called friend of God. You know, David obviously sinned. It's right there for you to read. But he was forgiven because... He repented. He owned up to what it was, agreed with God, confessed that what he did mm. was in fact depraved yeah. and in rebellion against him and asked for forgiveness. Please forgive me. Mm. And um, he received it. Yeah. And also I think that that psalm for all of us, whether it's abortion or whether we're an adulterer or using drugs or pornography or alcohol, whatever, whatever it is. For David, adultery, lying, murder. I mean, <laughs> line them up. Yeah. I, I, I once heard a sermon where he said that it was a sermon about the first commandment of the Ten Commandments, and he went through and kind of briefly overlined them all. And he made this quick point about it, because we talk about, in reform circles, the, the two tables of the law, the first four commandments, the second six, the, the first four are summed up in Jesus' statement, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the other six are love your neighbor as yourself. And the pastor's point was, as far as, you know, from that heart issue, you won't break the other six until you've broken the first four. Mm-hmm. Like you can't you can't covet mm-hmm. your neighbor's wife. You can't, you know, dishonor your father and mother until you have rejected the God who's revealed mm-hmm. himself. And his point was, look at David. And he went through in, in pretty exquisite detail and said, David basically broke all 10 commandments in this act and nowhere is he just excused and there's a terrible price exacted absolutely and yet there is repentance and david never knew peace the rest of his life with men but because of that repentant penitent heart he had peace with god even though his circumstances never really got better after that i mean Mm -hmm. the rest of his life is pretty messy yeah (laughs) but god was gracious to him yeah, forgiveness. And that's something that uh, I think, I love that quote, orthodoxy without compassion is ugly. Yeah. Hmm. Well, this has been a very sobering episode. 
It has. <laughs> that happened. What better way to lighten the mood? <laughs> no, but seriously, this has been a very intense, uh, very heavy episode. We, um, yeah. but one that we definitely need to continue to talk about. Yeah. Three thousand babies a day killed in our nation. Mm-hmm. Just the United States alone, uh, sixty plus million since Roe v. Wade. That's right, sixty-one million. Yeah, actually, um, what I did was um, years ago, I made a map of the United. Well, there was a map of the United States, and I, it's hard to wrap your mind around that number. So I went on and looked at the U.S. Census and colored in the states. Like, what would it be at the time? I think it was 40 million or 45 million. Anyway, um, I just refreshed it for 2020. And the states, because the population has grown at the same time the number of abortions have gone on, because I wondered, would there be additional states? Long story short, imagine... 19 of our states. You know what? I might even. Isn't it 20 or 21 now? It's 19 states. Imagine this South Dakota, North Dakota, Nebraska, Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, Idaho, Nevada, Utah, Kansas, Oklahoma, Iowa, Washington, Oregon, Arizona, New Mexico, Minnesota. Arkansas, Maine. Imagine that all of those states, the entire population of all those states were suddenly gone. That's approximately 60 million people. That's how many abortions have taken place in this country. Now, to your thought, Justin, um, I had to add most of Vermont this time since the last time I updated this. So most of the state of Vermont now would be added. So much of the west of the Mississippi and now working on New England, gone. And one of the things that struck me, one of the many things that struck me looking at those stats, and when you when you see that map with all those states colored in and you to try to wrap your mind around that, you know, we worry about a dirty bomb, you know, some weapon of mass destruction. And the thought occurred to me, who would have ever thought a weapon of mass destruction would be a scalpel or a suction machine? And yet that's, that's what we've done just in this country because there's about 50 million abortions every year in the world. So 3,000 people died on 9-11, tragically died. And we went to war. And a nation went to war. And yet that many children are dying every day in this country somewhere. And their blood is flowing underneath the streets in cities where we work and we play and we shop. And I wrote a song years ago, many years ago, about this. And one of the lines was, the voiceless, choiceless little ones lying, dying in their mother's wombs. And then it hit me reading the scriptures one point. I go, wait a minute, they're not voiceless. Hmm. Cain's blood cried out, to God from the ground. And we may not hear the voices of the blood of the little ones running through the sewer pipes underneath our cities, but God hears them. Mm. Indeed. I never thought about that before with uh, that in Genesis, because I was just, mm-hmm. just started my uh, Bible through the year plan a couple of weeks ago and um, was 
obviously pretty recently in that record in in uh, Genesis. And that is interesting. It's like God, but unsurprising because of the nature of God and who he is and his heart and his care for the least of these. Yes. And in the middle of all of this, I, uh, just in the midst of that, because it's just so overwhelming to think about all of that. I was just thinking about the end of the book. And at the end, it says, Revelation twenty two twenty, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. And John writes, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Just got to bring it. Got to look in that hope, too, as we stand here, that what we're, the steps we take as little people in little towns in faith <laughs> are not just the steps of little people in little towns. <laughs> Mm-hmm. because the king of kings is sitting on his throne and he's coming back and every step we take for his kingdom he's behind us and before us and beside us he is for us who can who stand, can against, stand us. against us and in the end jesus wins <laughs> right <laughs> he has one yeah. <laughs> spoiler alert for those who were wondering I mean, he's he, won. He both he has won and he is winning and he was he's going, to, going win. to win. And he's coming quickly. Mm. Well, listen, I, I thank I thank you both for um let me share with you today or you know, be with you today. Um I am greatly encouraged, you know, by the next generation, what you two are part of, you know. When you pass the baton, you know, it's like um I mean I'm sixty five, sixty six now, you know, and and um it's just, I'm just really encouraged. Um, I prayed for Justin just about every single day of his life. I would stand outside his door when he'd go to sleep at night and I prayed. I said, Lord, please make him a, a stronger, greater man of God than I ever dreamed of being myself. And to see that prayer um, being answered is, I'm just so grateful. And uh, so your generation, um, in a sense, tag, you're it. But I'm still hanging around for a while, <laughs> it looks like. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Well, before we end, do you have any, as the eldest dad in the room, do you have any dad jokes for us? <laughs> you know, knowing the subject we're going to be dealing with, I knew that that there was no way that um, <laughs> there was no way there was going to be a really appropriate way to... Indeed. Maybe someday if I come back, I'll... <laughs> I'll uh, grace you with a few. <laughs> mm. Fair enough. Well, you heard it here. Definitely not first, but you heard it here, folks. <laughs> mm. Go out, find and support your local pregnancy centers. Uh, if there isn't one, get off your butt and start one. And uh, let's save some babies, huh? Yeah. All right. Thank you guys so much for listening to this very somber episode of Distilling Theology. Mm. If you want to hear more, obviously... Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, uh, Twitter. Um, if you search for Distilling Theology or, as I always say, Distilling Tea on Twitter. Uh, couldn't fit it all. Check us out on uh, our website, distillingtheology.com. You can sign up for a mailing list or for our Patreon uh, to get behind-the-scenes content, uh, video footage. So, yeah, check us out on social media. You can also join our Facebook group, Distilling Theology. There's a lot of great conversation there. Uh, very mellow very relaxed, uh, a lot of memes, a lot of fun, fun that happens there. Um, so join us there, check us out. 
and we'd love to talk with you guys. Thank you guys so much for listening to this special interview episode talking about the sanctity of life. Next week, we'll be getting into an overview of theological studies. We'll be breaking down the various disciplines that constitute the study of theology because it's not a monolithic thing. And next week, we will be tasting a single malt scotch, Talisker Dark Storm. So if you have it handy or if you're traveling and you can get a hold of it because it's a travel exclusive, feel free. Join us in sipping it. And as always, Soli Deo Gloria. Gloria.